0: Good morning, church. My name, you heard this. My name is Jared. I I have the privilege of being one of the pastors around here. I'm really stoked on that fact that I am not the only one, but one of a plurality of men who are called to uh, shepherd this church. We're in Psalm 23. This is a new, uh, it's every year, every year in January, we do this little reset The last couple of years, we've talked through John 15 and focused on this theme of abiding in Christ, and we're doing that this year. And the text that we're using is Psalm 23, to orient our hearts. It's a familiar psalm. And what we need in 2023, like we needed in 2022, and like we will need in 2024, is to know our Lord, who is our shepherd, and we need to trust him. Like, that's what we most needed last year. It's what we need this year. It's what we are most going to need in the years to come. And so, Psalm 23 is actually in our Bibles to show us this real shepherd, the one who, who oversees and cares for our souls, and to trust him. It's there to help us trust him. And so, I think that's one of the reasons that we are so comforted by this psalm that is familiar in our, our culture. And I'll get to that in a, in a little bit. The word psalm, it, it, it comes from a Greek word that means songs sung with a harp. Uh, that's just in the Greek behind psalm. And in Hebrew, it means songs of praise. And it's important to, for us to realize that the psalms are both songs, but they are prayers. We should never look at the psalms in the scriptures as something other than prayers that are sung. David and the other writers of the psalms were singing. They were communing with the living God through song, but they were praying to him and communing with him. And and while the Hebrew word for psalm means songs of praise, the psalms, we have 150 of them in our Old Testament, in our Bibles, They, they go far beyond just um, giving voice to the emotion of praise or thankfulness. They actually represent the entire, the full range of human emotion. There is no emotion that you and I experience that is not represented somewhere in the 150 Psalms that we have. And so they express praise, yes. But they also express anger. There are times that the Psalms express even uh, the emotion of some rage, they cry out for justice, they cry out for mercy, they express sorrow and grief and frustration and joy and longing and more. And so Psalm 23 is one of these Psalms that resonates deeply with us human beings, In a world where songs notoriously come and go, Psalm 23 has endured across languages and cultures and continents for over 3,000 years. It was written in approximately 1,000 BC. And so as a curiosity, I was just thinking to myself, man, this psalm, this song of praise and need and adoration of who God is and how he cares for his people, man, it it has endured for 3,000 years. I wonder what, uh, just how... Songs in our own culture come and go, and they don't have the kind of staying power that Psalm 23 has. And so, if you're willing, let's go on a little a little road trip through the most uh, the the most popular songs of a decade, all the way back 60 years. I want to take us on a little just a little quiz, just see how good we are at noticing. So, l- here's my thought process. I'm like, what was the most popular song last year? Come to find out, I heard it for the very first time in January of 2023. I'd never heard the most popular song of 2022 before. And then I'm thinking, man, what about 2012? What about 2002, 92, all the way back to 1962? So if you're ready for a little informal poll, just for fun, we'll get to Psalm 23 and it'll feed our souls. But what do you think the most listened to song in the Billboard Top 100 song in 1962 was? Think about the era Think about the time. You can say it out loud if you want. What do you think? Elvis? Elvis? Beatles? Beatles? Would you be surprised if I said it was a song called Stranger on the Shore by Acker Bilk? (laughs) Has anybody in the room heard of Acker Bilk? I hadn't either. I listened to a couple of his songs. He's a clarinetist. Come to find out. And he also sings. And so I play this song. It was pretty good. And then, you know, I just let it go. And pretty soon I was like, what am I doing? Click off of this four songs later or so. But okay, fast forward 10 years, 1972. You you think about the era. Think about cultural revolution. Think about the explosion of music on, on the pop scene. Like 1972, what do you think the most popular song, Billboard Top 100 song was in 72? Come on. Okay. Somebody said Rolling Stones, Bee Gees, Al Green, Jim Croce. How about the first time I ever saw your face by Roberta Flack? You probably heard that. We're getting a little closer to home. 1982, I was a four-year-old at this time. There is a popular movie going on, the movie Greece, and there's a, a woman who is famous in Greece. She had a hit song. What do you think it was called? Physical. Somebody nailed it. Who was that? James, what is up? Physical by Olivia Newton John. Runner up to that one in 1982 was Eye of the Tiger. We can get down with that one. 1992. Think about what's going on in culture. We got the grunge scene going crazy. Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Nirvana, all those guys. We got hip hop coming up in pop culture pretty seriously. 1992. What is the hit song in '92? Oh. Smells like Teen Spirit. That would have been '91, but what? Marvin Gaye. Wrong. End of the Road by Boys to Men. <laughs> Baby Got Back was number two. If you know, you know. 2002, we're getting a little more familiar. Like some of my like millennial Gen Z friends are in the realm now. 2002, Britney Spears. Britney Spears. No, what do you think? Backstreet Boys. No. Beyonce in Sync. No. I'll tell you a little joke to reveal this one. What uh, what concert costs? Just $0.45. If $0.50 is headlining and Nickelback is supporting them. (laughs) Nickelback, How You Remind Me was the song in 2002. All right, getting a little closer. 2012, this one just totally escaped me. I don't even think we have a chance on this one. Has anybody heard of Godier? There it is. That is such a good song. I really like that song, featuring Kimbra. I don't want to leave her out. Um, 2022, last year. It was only eight days away, people. Number one song, Billboard Top 100. Who's the artist? Not Tay-Tay. Who, who, somebody said what? I heard I a heard Harry Styles. What song? There it is. As It Was by Harry Styles, the number one song in 2022. I'd never heard this song before Thursday of last week. 1000 BC, what do you think the most popular song in Hebrew culture was? Psalm 23 by David. Out of all of the Psalms, out of all 150 Psalms, Psalm 23 Maybe the well, the most well-known psalm in our day and age. And so, think about this: whenever there's a funeral depicted in film, what's the preacher reading? Psalm 23, right? It, think about the way that this psalm has entered into pop culture and into music. Pink Floyd has featured it. Um, the Grateful Dead have sampled Psalm 23 into their songs. Duke Ellington, you two. Coolio, God rest his soul, Kanye, of course, Eminem, and Megadeth all reference Psalm 23, and there's more too, and that's all great, and that's an illustration that this Psalm, Psalm 23, is actually, it's a pretty big deal in our culture, but here's the question for us, how are we helped by Psalm 23 as we spend the first weeks of the year 23 in it? How does Psalm 23 actually help us? What does it teach us about who God is? And what does it teach us about his trustworthiness? Go ahead and throw the psalm up on the screen if you would. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, and you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. As long as I live. This is God's word to us. Our great inclination is to live on our terms, to live according to our wisdom. And to live with the resources that are available to us, that are at our disposal. That is our inclination. And it is a rush, honestly. Oftentimes, when you, like, the first time you move out of the house and you throw the parents off your back and you got your own place, and, like, it is a hoot. It's fun for a minute until you realize that now it's up to you, and now your resources are a bit more limited than they were. And if we're living according to our wisdom, if we're living according to our own resources, and we're living on our terms, sort of the captain of our own souls, it, may be, it might be exhilarating for a moment, but what it ultimately transforms us into is exhausted, arrogant, Oftentimes, if we have some success with it, anxious, angry, and fearful people. And so Psalm 22 actually comes against all of that and teaches us and brings us good news. And the good news that Psalm 23 brings us is this, that we are not alone. The reality is is that you and I are not alone, but we have a shepherd who is competent to meet our every need. Everyone, the Lord is my shepherd, I have what I need. I want to ask, are you going about life alone, as if you're alone? Or are you living and are you ordering your life under God's care and direction? If you're going about your life as if it's up to you to make things come to pass and As if you're the captain of your destiny, you're like a a sheep who is trying to live as both sheep and shepherd. If you're living life on your terms, according to your wisdom and your resources, you're like a patient who's living as a patient but also trying to be the doctor in your life. You're living as a child who is also both child and parent. And for some of you, that's actually your story. That's how... Some of you grew up where parents were not available to you and you had to learn how to survive based on your own wisdom and your own resources in those moments. And I'm sorry for the pain that you have endured. And I hope that you can hear the good news and the reality that you are not alone but that you have a shepherd who is overseeing the affairs of your everyday life. He was then and he is now, and he is competent to meet your every need. And so if you are living life on your own terms, according to your own wisdom, you are out of order, and God is pursuing you. He is not disparaging you. I want you to hear that. He is in pursuit of you, convicting the soul, saying, you need me at the center. You need him at the center. This most beloved warrior king of Israel, David, he's the writer of Psalm 23. He calls himself a sheep in this psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. David was raised as a shepherd. He knew what it was to be a sheep. He knew what it was for a sheep to have a shepherd. And he knows the tasks and he knows the skills that are needed to be a competent shepherd, to take care of the sheep in his care. And so David says to the Lord, the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. You've probably heard sermons on Psalm 23 before. And um, I-, I want you to know, like, I am preaching this psalm. I'm not necessarily teaching this psalm this morning, meaning I'm not going to go into all the details of uh, how sheep need shepherds and how on their own they often wander and, and do all the things. We're not, we're not really going to talk about that this morning. So I'm going to assume the metaphor of sheep needing shepherd, a shepherd. I'm not going to try to prove the metaphor to you this morning, just to kind of set you up. If you've got questions about why it is that sheep need shepherds, you can find those things on the interwebs. Um, someone in our church, I don't know who it was, a couple of years ago, I don't re- recall who it was, a couple of years ago they recommended to me a book um, called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Has anybody read that book by Philip Keller? It's a really, really, really powerful book. If you want something that'll just take you into Psalm 23 and just get your gaze up on the reality and the power and the strength and the goodness of God, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23 is a fantastic little read. It's about, I don't know, 8 to 12 pages a chapter, and it just walks you line by line through... um, Psalm 23, he talks about, so he's still living and he talks about um, being a shepherd who would be out kind of moving his sheep from field to field and he would stay out with his sheep in these prime grazing times and he talked talk about how he was looking up at the heavens at nighttime, it's January in North Idaho so we haven't seen these stars in a long time but he would talk about, and I, man, I cannot wait for the sun and the stars to shine through that cloud layer, right? Amen. But he would talk about seeing these stars up in the sky, and the way that he would express it is like 250 million by 250 million stars up in the sky just twinkling at me. And he begins to talk about the very closest star to Earth is Alpha Centauri. It's uh, actually a group of three stars, A, B, and C. But when we look at them um, 20 trillion miles away, that's how far away they are from us, it appears to us. Is just one star, but when you look through a powerful telescope that we could buy, you know, you look and you you can see these stars. And he starts to just kind of muse a bit about what if I could travel to Alpha Centauri to one of these stars that are way, way, way bigger than the earth, and I could transport my little telescope with me and then turn around and look at the earth and realizes that we would not be able to see the earth from that distance because in the scheme of the galaxies and the cosmos, the earth is like a speck of dust in this building. You can barely see it from three feet, let alone 60 feet or four and a half light years away. And he begins to think about how the one who flung all of these stars and galaxies and planets into existence and who upholds them and sustains them by the word of his strength and by his power. They all originated the beauty. You've seen these photographs on the internet lately about just these, these, um, these systems of stars and these new galaxies that we're finding and how beautiful they are. These all originate in his mind. And and what we understand about the earth is it is the only place in all of the cosmos where life can be inhabited, where life can be sustained. And there are 7.8 billion image bearers on this planet who God has created to bear his image, and he sustains all of our galaxies and all of our microorganisms, and he calls himself our shepherd. Think about the personal nature of that statement. He calls himself our shepherd. Do you know him this way? Do you know him as your shepherd? Make an effort to draw near to him and you will find that he, actually, he will make sure that you find him. Make an effort to draw near to him, and he will make sure that you find him. The imagery of shepherd, it's all over the Bible. It's a major economic reality in the Old Testament and in Jesus' day in the New Testament. Um, But it is a hugely powerful metaphor for life, as it really is. God is shepherd. We are sheep. Definitely not flattering, but it is true. Like, what sports team do you know that has the, the mascot of a sheep or a lamb? right? The one that gets slaughtered on the field, right? The Bible doesn't flatter us in any way. It does not flatter us. It teaches us that we are deeply loved and deeply flawed. We need a shepherd. And this is a simple illustration of how we are doing without a shepherd. Look at the screen. It's in Russia. That's you and I. (laughs) That is us. We need a shepherd. What is our shepherd like? Does Psalm 23 have anything to tell us about that? What does he want for you? What does he want for those around you? Uh, Right out of the gates, the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. It asserts, David asserts that Yahweh, the God of all creation, provides all we need. It's almost impossible for us to separate our view of God from people who we have looked to to represent Him. You've got parents in your life, you've got pastors in your life, you've got spiritual leaders or people who you look to to represent God. And some of those people have invested in you heavily and have been wonderful examples. And so it makes it a little bit easier for you to relate to God because of how you've you've experienced the goodness of him through his people. And there's a a pretty ugly flip side to that, too. There have been spiritual leaders and parents and people in your life who you have looked to to represent God, but they have failed you and they uh, they, they have mistreated you in tremendous ways. And it hinders your ability, my ability, our ability to see God as good. And so, if that's you, if that's your story, we, you, we have a lot of int- intentional work to do in order to dig ourselves out and to reshape our view of God. That's the reality because the scriptures show us a God who is perfect and a God who is all wise and all knowing and all powerful and all good. And he shows his goodness to us by caring for our physical needs. He, this psalm opens up for us nourishment. He lets me, that's the Christian Standard Bible Version, or the ESV says, he makes me. That's a gentle make, that's not a harsh make. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters or quiet waters, waters of rest, where the water is quiet, it's clean, it's safe. This verse identifies for us the way that God feeds his people physically and so you know this this is common sense daily we need a lot of food we need a lot of water we need our vitamins we need our minerals we need our sustenance and anyone who has had a sick body is in tune with just how fragile we are like sure when adrenaline courses through our veins right we can lift cars and wrestle bears but when a little itty bitty virus enters our veins and starts flowing Men and women who can lift cars and wrestle bears all of a sudden can't pick themselves up out of a bed. We are fragile people. Fasting right now is in vogue. Intermittent fasting, right? But nobody who knows a thing about nutrition claims to be able to live without food and water. You fast intentionally. You go without food for a time in order to create a response in your body, and then you give yourself nutrition again, and your body reacts to that. You do that systematically and intentionally, but our, nourish matter, our nourishment matters intensely because we are magnificent creatures, and we're strong creatures who need fuel, food, and lubrication, water, to keep going, but we are Let us not make any mistake. We are fragile. And so knowing this, God sustains the physical nourishment of a world population that is right around 7.8 billion people on the planet right now. The earth that he has made, that he oversees, can sustain, can provide the food and the water necessary to feed the entire world. Period. And so we might ask, like, but what about those who are going without food and going without water, clean water in our culture? What about them? It is not that God is not caring. It is that we as his stewards who do have the food are actually failing them. That's the reality. And we want to go like, all right, where do I need to go? How do I need to care for these needs? And there are people in our community right here who are under-resourced In food, like food resources, and, and in our country, there are ways that we can engage this. And that's not the main point of my sermon, but I want us to understand that it is not that God is not good. It is that He has also given His people something to do, and we have a responsibility to make sure that these needs are met. And so, if that's you, and that's like there's a strong inclination within you to help in those ways, stop waiting for permission. Round up some people. Get out and start doing something with the resources that you have. And the Lord will, as you're faithful with a little, he will continue to provide more. This psalm also speaks of rest. When our most fundamental needs are met, we are invited to rest. Until those fundamental needs of food and water are not met, we cannot rest. Every one of us is or will be or should be carrying significant responsibility. And when, but, but yet when we're frantic in our own souls and we cannot or will not rest, we cannot or will not prioritize silence before the Lord, this functions as a, as a, a dash Uh, on the, uh, uh, rather a gauge on the dash of our souls that we are redlining and we're out of order. And so for me personally, 2022 has been, it's been a really good year, but a major challenge in 2022 for me has been prioritizing Sabbath, has been prioritizing quieting my mind before the Lord, quieting and rest, making sure that my body is like stopping before the Lord. My mind is tuned into listening to him and to silence And that might sound like a nightmare uh, to you, but it is almost impossible to hear God speak to the soul when we are continually clouding our minds and our eyes and our bodies with noise and activity. And for some of us, I'm especially sympathetic to the moms in the room who have little people under your feet. It is almost impossible for you to get a breath. And so I'm not just heaping on you, do more try more, get it done. I'm, I'm saying, like, some seasons we just have to make it through. Some seasons we just have to do what we can to survive. And that there is a significant... Uh, Benefit that comes home to us, soul and mind, when we are able to begin to quiet ourselves before the Lord. I've conditioned myself into busyness over the last couple of months of 2022, and one of my uh, one of my key aims in January of 23 is just to like get to the chair in my office, shut my mouth, open the scriptures on my lap, sit. And try to spend some time. And about 90 seconds in, I'm pinging all over the place. And it's like come back to this space over and over and over again and I'm just finding how I've conditioned myself into busyness and how hard it is to just quiet my mind and so it's been helpful for me to have a notebook right next to me because there's something I gotta be about today and I just write it down and I move it off my mental inventory and I just put it there I can come back to it it's not gonna get forgotten I'm not anxious in my soul because that's gonna get forgotten and I just like try to refocus and the scriptures in front of me are really helpful to give my eyes something but my eyes are still all over the place and, and so if that's you, man, I, just, I, I, I only say that to let you know that you are not alone, that it is incredibly difficult in our day and age to quiet ourselves before the Lord. And I know that God is inviting me through Psalm 23 to prioritize him. Say this with me. It's on the screen. The, the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He shows his goodness by caring for our own soul's need too. He renews my life. He restores my soul. It's far easier to attend to our physical needs than it is our soul needs. Would you agree with that? I'm not a scientist, I'm not a psychologist but I am a pastor and a pastor's job is to care for souls and the moment I wrote that little line into my notes I was like delete, delete, delete delete, delete because I just, it's hard, it's like a challenge to care for my own soul, I just told you a little bit about that struggle to just get quiet it's, ch- it's a challenge for me as an individual to just attend to my the needs of my own soul and so I felt overwhelmed when I wrote that and I was like but you gotta, like, you gotta say something about it and And yet, like helping others attend to their own souls removes me a couple of degrees away from the center of control. And so that's challenging too. And the point is, is that the care of a person's soul, yours or mine, is weighty and it's serious and that God cares a lot about it, which should teach us that we all need to pay attention to our souls. And so pastors and leaders and people who are helping you follow Jesus can help you care for your soul. But if you or I will not engage the reality and attend to our own soul, there's actually nothing for us to do for you. You bear full responsibility for the care of your soul. You and I must attend. The only soul that I am in control of is this one right here. What is the soul? and Why does David credit God with restoring it, with renewing it? Um, the Hebrew word for soul is nefesh, and it means life, breath, or inner being. And so that's why we see it translated in the ESV as soul, and we see it translated in the CSB. These are really close translations to one another, but they differ here. And the CSB's translation is life, and both are right. Um, the Greek word, so that's Hebrew, nefesh, life, breath, inner being. The Greek word is psyche. That sounds familiar to you, right? Right? It also means life. That's what psyche means, is life. And the, so the biblical word for soul in the whole of our Bibles, it's aiming at the central, complete part of who you and I are. It's aiming at our, our soul is the summary of our entire being. Um, The Cambridge English Dictionary, just going to like an English source dictionary, um, it says here the spiritual part of a person, the soul is the spiritual part of a person that some people believe continues to exist in some form after their body has died. Or the soul is the part of a person that is not physical and experiences deep feelings and emotions. So here on the screen is a summary of of some of what the Bible has to say about the work that our soul is doing and what our soul is experiencing. Man is called, woman is called to love God with all heart and soul. Within our soul lies the desire for our food. Within our soul lies the lust of our flesh. Thirst, listen to this, thirst for murder and revenge. The soul in the scriptures is said to weep, and to be exercised in patience, knowledge and understanding, thought, love, and memory, all of these originate in our soul. Uh, Baker's uh, Encyclopedia of the Bible says, here the soul comes close to what today would be called the self, one's personality or ego. Here's the truth that we need. Our souls need Restoration. This little diagram on the screen here, just, it's not perfect. There's some people who differ on soul and spirit. Are they different? Are they the same? The Bible seems to talk about um, soul and spirit interchangeably at times, but it also doesn't so much at times. There's this nerdy theological language, trichotomy and dichotomy, figuring out what, like, what is a whole person, but the idea is the soul encompasses body, mind, and Heart, which is at the center. It's our desire. The heart is the desire center of the human being. Here's the truth our souls need restoration in order to dwell in the glory filled, white, hot, sin consuming presence of God. And we need renewal and we need a turnaround. And our souls need God at the center. We need God at the front. We need God at the side. We need God at the back. Without God, we're like a lost expedition party. We can't find our way out of the woods. We can't find our way out of the valleys. We're lost without him. John Ortberg says, a soul without a center feels constantly vulnerable to people or circumstances. Think about that. A soul without a center in God feels constantly vulnerable to people or circumstances. But the soul comes alive when it is centered on God. I've been reading this book, Uh, Undaunted Courage, by Stephen Ambrose about the Lewis and Clark expedition. And they traveled right through this area just south of here. The, uh, if you're wondering what the mountains are called, right around here, they're called the Bitterroots. And down south into the Clearwater region, they're called the Bitterroots. And that's some of the area where Lewis and Clark traveled through Montana, Idaho, and then into Oregon. And they made it all the way from Virginia, all the way west. They're journaling, they're creating maps. They've got a small expedition party of about 31 people total. They're encountering natives in the West that have never been discovered, are not known. um, they're, They're doing all kinds of botany and Lewis is like, he is absolutely detailed on figuring out what the fauna and flora and trees and all these new species that they're discovering. And he's taking samples and they're saving them and they're carrying them with them. They make it all the way, to the Pacific Ocean, and then they start to come back, and Lewis, the, the absolute worst part of Lewis and Clark, this expedition party's travels, were the bitter roots. This area, it was brutal on them coming through these passes on their way out west, and as they were coming back, um, they're headed east in June of, 20, of 1806, um, they had to come through, and Lewis kind of had it in his mind. He really wanted to. He really wanted to get back, and he wanted to report to Jefferson, and he wanted to show the maps and the journals and all the samples and everything that they had collected. and And so they were waiting for um, some Nez Perce native guides to meet up with them, and they were late. and And Lewis was chomping at the bit, and the snowpack that season was really intense. And if you're in the mountain passes, like Hoodoo Pass or areas here that are six thousand feet or so, you know that the snow he stays until late June and into July oftentimes. And he he just finally had waited for five weeks and it's mid-June and he's like, we're going. We're going to figure it out ourselves. We're going to find the Lolo Trail. We've heard that the trees, there's markings on the sides of the trees over the decades where the the Indians have come through and they've, they've rubbed with tomahawks and with their pack animals, they've rubbed the sides of these trees clear of bark and so we can find the Lolo Trail. And so they get about 40 miles into the Bitterroots, up these passes and they get into 12, 12 to 15 feet of snow, no grass for the 19 men at this time. And the, or I'm sorry, the, um, I think uh, they had 17 horses and nine men. At this time, they had separated their party and they were kind of moving in different, um, in different groups. And they had no grass whatsoever for these horses and they realized that we are totally doomed if we try to do this ourselves. We're gonna be lost, we're gonna freeze. Our animals aren't, we're gonna to starve to death. And so they, they went back 40 miles and then they found grass for the horses and then they sent a party back out to find the Nez Perce to meet up with some of their own party. And they found a couple of, they found five teenage Nez Perce boys who then came and guided them along the Lolo Trail. They covered 156 miles in six days through these mountain passes and this snowpack, and they made it. And Lewis, in his journals, he writes like with all kinds of affection. It wasn't just a little pat on the head to these Indian guides. He just said, we absolutely loved them. We were so affectionate, so thankful for the way that they, they, they cared for us. And they wept as they, um, as they said goodbye as these boys left. The boys wept. The expedition party, they loved one another. They couldn't speak the same language. 160, 56 miles, six days, none of them could speak the same language. They just had to do the sign language thing and draw in the dirt. They absolutely loved one another. We are magnificent and we are strong, but we are vulnerable and we are incapable at times. And without God as our expert guide, we just don't know our own souls and the true contours of who we are. And so our souls need renewal and they need direction that only our expert guide, God, can provide us. So without the shepherd, the sheep are lost. Without our shepherd, the sheep, that's us, it's not them, it's the person in your seat, we are lost. But with the shepherd, we, dis- we discover the right paths, and he keeps us on those paths. Chad Bird says this, and I'll, I'll, I'll be done here in just a few moments. Um, Chad Bird says, lost sheep don't bring themselves home, their shepherd does. So in Psalm 23, not only does the Lord lead us in green pastures and down righteous paths and beside quiet waters, when we stray and when we get lost, he restores us. He lays us on his shoulders and carries us home rejoicing. We're not the only ones, the rescued ones who are rejoicing. He is the one, as he finds us and carries us and leads us and guides us, he is the one who rejoices. And so you and I need to know this from Psalm 23. We can trust the shepherd with every ounce of our identity, every ounce of our resources, the ones we have, the ones we wish we had, the ones that we've almost got. We can trust the Lord with every family member We can trust our shepherd with every wound, with every weakness, with every fear, with every addiction, all the big stuff, all the small stuff. He is the one who, when in the lead, he never loses the trail. So what is it all for? Verse three, is the Lord the main character of Psalm 23, or are we? Sorry, guys, I know you hate this right now. He leads us along the right paths for his name's sake. For sure, you and I are characters in the ecosystem of Psalm 23. But we are not the primary subject of Psalm 23. We're the secondary subject. Our shepherd is the subject of Psalm 23. And Yahweh, the Lord our shepherd, has sent you and I, his son, to dwell among us, to take our sin upon his shoulders to carry our sin, to carry our shame, to carry our guilt, to carry our our fear all the way to his death where his blood was shed at the hands of lawless and lost men and women. And Jesus, the good shepherd, is the one who lays down his life in order to bring his sheep safely home. He renews our souls and he prepares us to meet God in his all, his sin-consuming glory. So when this good shepherd, Jesus, calls our name and when we respond to him and when we lay our burdens and lay our sins on the shepherd and he restores and renews our our souls, the center of who we are changes because of him. And this good shepherd Jesus rejoices at what he has done and at who you he has won. He rejoices at all he has done to make atonement and he rejoices at who he gets. We are his possession. We are his delight. We are the sheep of his pasture. And so what we need in 2023, like we needed in 22 and like we will need in 2024, is to know this God who made us and to trust him. Psalm 23 is incredibly good news and it transforms our entire being. And so I'll just leave you with this question. Is there something in your world, in your season of life, in your time of life that you have a sense, you feel that you need, but that you don't have? Would you be willing to lay that at the feet of your shepherd and ask him to carry that for you? Would you be willing to trust that into his hands? Only you can name what that is for you. Would you be willing? Pray with me. Father, We, whether we see it or know it or like it or not, you are the shepherd of our souls who cares for us. And so we ask that you would help us to see your son as glorious and capable, to see him as the good shepherd. Father, we, would, uh, we ask that we would see you and his will and the Spirit's will as one. We ask that your Spirit would reveal in us what it is that we're trying to work out in our power, And that, Holy Spirit, you would help us release our hands around those things. It's not that we just let go of our desire. We keep the desire, sure, but we give you ultimate control of it. Would you show us the way? Would you provide for your people? Would you give us what we need? You already do, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.